All right, well, this year, this year in Foundations, we are studying what? We are doing a series called Parenting Through the Bible. So what we're trying to do is actually just go through the entire Bible, just look at passages that are talking about parenting and family. And so Jonathan kicked us off at the, our very first meeting of Foundations, and he talked about God's design for the family. We'll look at Genesis 2 and 3. And then last time we met, Joe Hayhurst took us through Exodus 20, and we looked at the enduring consequences of obedience. Well, tonight we're going to look at a passage that's probably familiar to most of you. It's in Deuteronomy 6, and we're going to look at verses 4 through 9. So I encourage you, if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to Deuteronomy. And there's some notes there on your table if you'd like to take notes and follow along. But before we get started reading this passage, I always think it's important to, to just remind ourselves of what's going on here. So in Deuteronomy 6, what's taking place here? So just a reminder, the Israelites, they were slaves in Egypt. God brings them out of Egypt. He says, I'm going to take you to the promised land. So they start going to the promised land, and they stop, and they, they give them the, uh, God gives them the Ten Commandments and what they should be doing. As they go towards the promised land, what happens? They send in spies, and when the spies come back, all of the spies except Joshua and Caleb said, hey, God, <laughs> we don't trust you. We don't want to die there. And they were, just did not trust God. And God punished them for that. He said, okay, then I'm, this generation is going to die off. And that's what happened. So he allowed them to wander around in the wilderness for 40 years while that generation died off. So pretty much everybody over the age of 20, with the exception of Joshua and Caleb, died because of their lack of trust that God would take care of them to take the promised land. So we had this new generation, this group of people that were born during this want, these wanderings. And so Moses has to go and give them the law again. That's why Deuteronomy is often called the second law. In fact, the chapter before what we're about to read is Moses giving the Ten Commandments again. Again, the second law. So here's Moses, and this is what Moses is about to say as he gives the commandments of God to them again. So if you'll turn with me to Deuteronomy 6, starting there in verse 4. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them dil diligently to your sons, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. So Moses starts off with, here in verse 4, it says, Hear, O Israel. Now Moses has already been speaking. So it's not like he just walked up to the podium, grabs the mic, and says, Hey, everybody listen. Now, this is like when we're talking to our kids and we're giving them information and you know you're about to say something really important that they need to hear, understand, and obey. So he's saying, hear, O Israel. Okay, wake up. I'm about to say something very important. And that word hear is the Hebrew word for shema. Now, that may sound familiar to you because devout Jews actually do something what they call the shema which means that they recite these three passages of Scripture once in the morning and once in the evening. And one of those three passages is this passage right here out of Deuteronomy 6. So now that Moses has their attention, he makes this statement here in this passage. 
It's a declaration. It's a commitment to serve God and of who God really is. They were about to go into a land with many gods, but not the true God. So he wanted to remind them of who is the true God, and there's only one true God, and who they are going to serve when they go into that land. You see, he was laying the foundation for the commands that they were to follow. And we too must look at this, we too must have the right foundation for have a correct thinking and a commitment to God as well. So if you're following along your notes, uh, point one is that we must start with the right foundation before we can get to this greatest command that we see here in the middle of this passage. We have to start with the right foundation. So how do we start with the right foundation? Well, we see it very quickly here. The Lord is our God. We see it this, this submitting to God as our Lord, a willingness to obey. We have to submit to God. We have to truly make him our God. You see, the right foundation starts when we, when we submit to God. If you would, turn with me to Matthew 7, 22. We're going to talk about foundation here a little bit. Matthew 7, actually we're going to start in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your, in, in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, hmm, I never knew you. Depart from me who practice lawlessness. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house. And yet it did not fall for it had been found on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against the house, and it fell, and great was its fall. So we see these two foundations. And there's a correlation here, because when we look at this in verse 24, he who hears the words of mine and acts, them, acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. Isn't that the foundation we want, is on the rock? They submitted to God, they listened to him, to his, um, his commands. That's what it says there in 24. Here's the words of mine and acts on them. So we see this declaration here in Deuteronomy. The Lord is our God. We, we have to submit to him. We have to obey him. There's another passage you're probably very familiar with. It's the rich young ruler out of Matthew 19. Just to summarize that obviously this gentleman uh, came to Christ and said, how do I inherit eternal life? And the short version of it is that Christ says, uh, have you obeyed the commands? He says, yes, I've obeyed the commands. And he goes, well, I need you to give up all of your possessions. And he went away sad. Now, is this a passage that's teaching us about that money is bad and that we can't have any money and for us to inherit eternal life that we have to give up all our money? That's not what it was. Jesus knew the idol in his life that he would not give up, that he always put before God. And the right foundation is to make sure that we are putting everything aside. We are submitting to, Lord, to, to God and making him the Lord of our life and we're willing to obey him and give everything up for that. So as we look back in this text, we not only see this declaration to submit to God, but we also see a reminder to have a biblical view of God. We should be having a biblical view of God. We see this phrase, the Lord is one. 
the Lord is one. Now, Moses is preparing the group of people, the Israelites, to go into a land where there were many gods. And he knew they were going to see all this. And he wanted to make sure, hey, there is only one God, only one true God. Doesn't mean that we put God first and then we can put the other gods second, third, and fourth. But there's only one God. He deserves our total allegiance and commitment, no other gods. That's called monotheism. So there is only one God. There's a big word there in that blank, monotheism. Okay, that is a biblical view of God. Now today, there is also monotheists that don't have a biblical view of God. Islam and Judaism, they believe in one God, but it's not a biblical view of God. So we also, it says the Lord is one. Now it might be tempting to think that this contradicts what we believe in the Trinity, but that's not true. If we look at Genesis 2:24. It says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. It's the same word. They're using the same word here, one flesh. Now, what does that mean? Okay, there's still two distinct persons, but if we were in perfect unity, if there wasn't sin, we'd have perfect unity, and that's what it's saying. There's perfect unity in the Trinity of God. You see, the word one is describing that perfect unity that exists in the Godhead in three distinct persons, and that scripture clearly communica- communicates to us that each of those three persons of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they each have an intellect, they each have a will, and they each have, an emotion, each have emotions. Now, this is going to be distinctly different from what the Israelites would see as they go into the land. It would be a contrast to the many gods of the inhabitants of that land at and they did embrace and worship those gods. Now, God is saying no other gods would be allowed or tolerated. He is a jealous God. In James 2, 19 through 20, you see James referencing this verse in Deuteronomy. In James 2, it's starting in verse 19, it says, you believe that God is one. Yep, right out of Deuteronomy. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? See, there is no action. It doesn't mean the actions save us. Actions are a a fruit, a result of our, our, our salvation. And if we're truly committed to God, we're going to see those works. We're going to be submitting to him. We're going to recognize that he is God. We are not. So God is preparing them to make sure they don't have idols um, in their life as they go in and see these other gods and to not have idols in their life, to make sure that God is number one. How about you? How are you doing in that area with idols? Are the things that you put in front of God and you look at how you spend your time and you spend your money, that says a lot about where we put God on our scale. Also, these truths are central to the gospel message. If we look at Paul, when he gives the gospel message, specifically like at the sermon on Mars Hill, he starts with this very right foundation. See, he begins with a biblical view of God. He doesn't start out saying, hey, that guy, Jesus, he died on a cross for your sins. Where does he start? He starts back at creation. He starts with good theology and says, hey, God, creator, he has the right to tell you what to do. He's a holy God. He's a just God. You are not. And so, even Paul, even the gospel message has this, this right foundation that 
Moses is setting them up for, but we also need to have this right foundation, this right foundation of submitting to God, but also a biblical view of who God is. Now let's look at the next verse in Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6, 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your might. Now see, the point is saying love with all your heart and might we can sit there and look at those different things and try to parse them out, but that's not really what is the, is the point there. The point is this is all-consuming. It's an all-consuming love for God. It is to love God with every fiber within your being, an all-consuming love. And Deuteronomy, just a few chapters later, even repeats this. In Deuteronomy 10, 12, Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So it should be an all-consuming love. Now Jesus even references this passage. And I love it because he calls it the greatest commandment. This is such an important interaction where he calls this the greatest commandment that all three of the synoptic gospels reference it. We see it in Matthew, we see it in Mark, and we see it in Luke. I like, because this is such an important passage where he calls, this is the most important thing I really liked for us to go through, at least the Matthew and Mark passages. So if you like uh, to turn there, Matthew 22, 34 through 40, or you can just listen here. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your mind. This is the greatest and this is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Mark gives us some additional information about the interaction. And I want you to pay attention to the end here. It's really neat what takes place. In Mark 12, starting at verse 28, one of the scribes came and heard them arguing. And recognizing that he had answered them well, asked him, what commandment is the foremost of all? Jesus answered, the foremost is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The scribe said to him, Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one, and there is no one else besides him. And to love him with all your heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. Did you notice how Jesus commends his answer that loving God is better than burnt offerings and sacrifices? Are there things that you're doing in your life that you're thinking you're going to gain favor from God? I mean, I don't think any of us is doing burnt offerings in our backyard. But in today's world, are we doing things to try to earn God's favor? Are we doing things because we love God? 
See, Jesus clearly states in these passages that this is the greatest commandment. So we ought to take heed. So how do we love God? That's a phrase we're throwing around. We should love God. We should love God. So how do we love God? Think about that for a minute. It's a phrase we throw around a lot. How do we love God? I think it starts with the gospel. We have to have a biblical understanding of our own depravity. We have to have a biblical understanding of salvation, the fact that he didn't have to reconcile us. We did nothing to earn our salvation. When we have the high view of God, that should humble us and that should cause us to be extremely grateful and we should love him for that. A truly regenerated Christian will love God, simply put. But how do we grow in our love for God? Because this is something we should be doing. How do we grow in our love for God? Well, how do we grow in our love for people? How about our spouse? How do we grow in love or how do we grow in our love for our spouse? I think there's two ways. I think it's communication and actions. You sit down and you talk. You, can, you communicate. And also you, you serve them. Now, how do we actually talk to God? Well, we're going to develop that here in this next verse that we're going to read out of Deuteronomy. So if we'll go back to Deuteronomy 6, 6. These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. Okay, well, we know what happens in the next verse because we've already read through it. It's about teaching. But what does he say we should do before we teach? Well, I kind of think of it like this. We love music in our home. And Billy Ruth and I play several instruments. And so when our kids were young, we actually taught them how to play the piano. But there came a point where I couldn't teach them anymore. And so Billy Ruth was doing the teaching. And we got to the point where Billy Ruth couldn't teach them anymore. So what do we do? We actually hired someone that could take them further than we could. Does that make sense? I mean, that's what you do. Well, how can we teach our kids about God if we're not learning about God? We have to be applying it to our own life, applying it to your life. Point number three, we have to be applying it in our own hearts. It says, these shall be on your heart. So we have to be applying it to ourselves. So how do we apply this to ourselves? How do we put this on our heart? There's three things I want us to talk about. Now, these are the three, I feel like the three most important things, how we're going to grow spiritually how we're going to grow in our love for God. And we have to be doing this if we're going to be parents or going to be teaching our children about God. First one is the Bible. It's so Bible study is the very first thing we ought to be talking about because that's how we hear God communicating to us. He has communicated to us through his word. So we talked about growing in love, this communication. Well, the communication we get from God is from his word. So that's where we should start. In Psalms 119, 105, it says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, it says, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. Scripture is how we grow. How are we doing in that? How are you doing in spending time in the Bible? The great thing about Scripture is that it's clear, it's simple to understand. 
The theological term is perspicuity, which I think is hilarious because I barely can say it and I know I can't spell it. And what does it mean? It just means that it's clear and simple. Scripture is clear and simple. We do not have to have someone to interpret it for us. We can go to it. We ought to dive in and study it. We ought to dive in and make sure that the people who are teaching us are saying things that are correct. Be a Berean, like Paul commends them for doing that. Testing Paul, that's great. You ought to know how to study the Bible. Do you really know how to do that? If that's something you struggle with, uh, there's a few suggestions there below that point. Tom did a series, and it's on the website that Jonathan just pointed out in the media section. You can go in the uh, archives there, and you can type in Bible study for every Christian. Some great audio, there's some great PowerPoints. That will help you to learn how to study the Bible on your own because need, you need to be diving into the Word. Also, there's a book by John MacArthur called How to Study the Bible. Also here at Countryside, there is a discipleship program called Partners One-on-One, where you go through 10 chapters and you study a number of things, and one of those things that you study is Bible study, and you can go through that as well. Also, there's a number of other things. There's the Fundamentals of the Faith class that will help with that and getting some solid information, uh, and that's a kind of a rotational class that pops up every so often here at Countryside. Also, there's a number of good books that you can have. I know a number of people in the room have MacArthur's Study Bible. That can be a useful tool when you're studying. There's also a great uh, book that was just came out a few years ago, uh, Biblical Doctrine by um, MacArthur Mayhew, and then there's kind of an abbreviated version called Essentials Doctrine. Yeah, Essentials Doctrine. Uh, that could be a good resource as well if you to learn how to study the Bible. So what's another thing that we can do to be applying it to our life? We've got Bible study, but we also have meditating on Scripture. Now, meditating, I think uh, people kind of go, whoa, 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 wait. Isn't it kind of like Eastern mysticism? No. Meditating on Scripture, simply put, is to think deeply on something. So you've spent time studying the Bible. Then you think deeply on it. You think deeply on it throughout the day. So we should be meditating on Scripture. And there's a number of passages that encourage us to do that and, and show the benefits as well. Psalm 1, 1 through 3, a very familiar passage. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. There's a strong recommendation and a strong command that we ought to be spending time meditating day and night. Also, Psalm 119.97, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Didn't say just a little bit of the day. Said all the day. We've got to be thinking about God all day long. Okay? A third thing to apply it to your life, we talked about Bible study. We talked about meditating on God's word. But prayer, that's prayer is us talking to God. Remember we talked about how do we grow in our love? We have communication. Well, God's communicating to us through his word. We communicate to God through prayer. We ought to be talking to God. There's a number of passages there. There's a few listed there. First Thessalonians um, 5, 16 through 18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. 
1 John 5, 14, this is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And Ephesians 6, 18, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. See, these are the three things, Bible study, meditation, and prayer is how we keep God's command on our heart. Remember, we're going back to Deuteronomy now, on our heart. That's how we keep it on our heart. This is how we apply it to our lives is by doing those three things. So let's look at the next verse there in Deuteronomy. It's Deuteronomy 6, 7. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit up, or yeah, sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. See, verse 7 is very clear that we are to be teaching. How are we to be teaching? Diligently. It didn't say you are to teach your kids if you have the gift of teaching. There's, this is not an option as parents. We are to be teaching. And I think there's a temptation, especially when we go to a very solid church, to think that, okay, if I just take my kids to church, church that's where they're going to get all their, their teaching. Parents, you are the primary spiritual teaching mechanism in the home. You don't get to put that off on the church. But it's great that the church will come alongside you and encourage you in that area and reinforce what you're teaching at home. You don't get to shy away from this. We have to be teaching our kids. So, teaching your family, point number four, teaching your family. But when we look at this, we see this teaching, and then what does it say? It says, you shall teach them diligently and then shall talk of them when you sit in your house. So we kind of see this breakout here. So we're going to call it this first part, formal instruction, this teaching, this formal time that you sit down and teach. So family worship, family devotions. Joe, I think it was the first time we met, actually talked about the Generation of Grace curriculum that you can use at home. That's a great way to have formal instruction. It goes along with what the kids are learning on Sunday morning. You don't have to prepare. You just open up and start reading. So that can be a great thing to use. We've got the kids' corner in the bulletin to be able to ha sit down and talk about the lessons. There's questions in there for you to be able to talk to your kids about. There's a catechism. John, uh, Jonathan was just talking about um, the songs and the things on the website that you can see about the catechism and the songs. That could be a helpful thing. What about working, helping your kids with their Awana memory verses? It's taking time to do that. So we see this time of formal instruction. But when we look at this verse in Deuteronomy, it also says, and shall talk of them when you sit, when you walk, when you lie down, when you rise up. Well, that's pretty much all day, right? So we're to be doing that all day long. So I would put this in the category of informal instruction. So point B, there's informal instruction. And what does that mean? That means you're going to be, you got to be talking about, your, about God in your home all day. This is not just something you do on Sunday and then you don't talk about God all week. You get up and you have breakfast, you pray, you thank God for the day that he has given you, thank God for the food. You take them to school or you do school at home and you talk to them about seeing the glory of God in the structure of mathematics or, or science or biology or something like that. We talk about God through those studies. Then after school, maybe you go to the grocery store and you walk into the fruit and vegetable section. You go, wow, 
What an amazing creativity and diversity of things that God has made. And we can talk to our kids about those. Because we are removed, you know, we're not an agrarian society, but we need to recognize that God did provide those. He provided the plants, the seeds, the sun, the rain. We can talk to our kids about that. So as we're driving from the grocery store back to the house, we, rec- we look at the trees and see the beautiful variety of trees and flowers, the birds, and just how amazing they are designed. I- ICR is a great resource. We just had Creation Sunday. And talk about those amazing differences, you know, like the humming, uh, the, the woodpecker, how its brain is set up different than other birds, and it's got a shock absorber in there. See the glory of God in creation. You can do that while you're driving around. That can be a great way to have informal instruction to the kids, to be talking about God throughout the entire day. Maybe you get home and maybe the neighbors had a tree fall. We can talk about loving our neighbor, the second greatest commandment. How can we go over there and help them and love them like Christ? Rake up some leaves, pick up some wood. Now, maybe later in the day on the off chance, maybe your child, this probably won't happen to you, but maybe they might disobey. Okay, how, how, do we, how do we handle that situation? Are we instructing them to say, God says lying is wrong, selfishness is wrong, anger, pride. Do we take them to the, to the Bible and say, this is what God says. I have to submit to God's authority and you do as well. Do you talk to your kids about that? Do you give them instruction from the Bible? There's a really good resource, and unfortunately, I... We gave ours away this past week, so we don't have one. I would have brought it up here. But there's a great resource that we have in the bookstore normally. It's called Wise Words, and we've used that a lot in our home because it helps the kids. It helps you to teach the kids how to deal with sin because that's an important part of parenting is teach them how do we deal with sin. And the New Testament is very clear. We've got to learn to not just put off that, that sin, but what do we need to be putting on? And so it, it has those contrasts in there for you already set up and gives you verses, and that can be very helpful. When your child lies, it has verses already there that you can actually instruct them with to say why lying is wrong, but what we need to be working on instead. So there's some great resources as well, but that's another informal way that we should be instructing our kids and talking about God throughout the entire day. So verses eight and nine, to wrap up this passage, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Now, what are we to do with this? Are we to go home and do that? Put these things on our wrist, foreheads? No. But if you do notice that the devout Jewish, they literally take this, they take this literally. They do the phylacteries and other verses in there. The point is, is that we should be so focused on God and we're going to put things around us to make sure that we're constantly reminded to think about God. Now, I don't want to sit there and say, you need to put a Bible verse on your wall. That's not what I'm saying, but maybe that would be helpful to you. But just make sure you're surrounding yourself with things that help you to think about God. For me, it is nice to have a verse on the wall. It's also nice that when I hop in my truck and I'm driving down the road, I can listen to either some music that helps me to focus in on God or maybe even a sermon. Uh, So there's a lot of things we can surround ourselves with to help us to think about God all day long. So as you look back at this text, that gives us the greatest commandment. I mean, our Lord says this is the greatest commandment, that we should love the Lord our God. So as we look back at this, I hope you see that it starts with this right foundation, that we are submitting to God as our Lord and having a biblical, correct biblical view of God. See, this great command is for us to love God with an all-consuming love. His commands are to be on our hearts 
and we must be applying them to our own life through Bible study, through meditation and prayer, but then we're also to teach our kids through a time of formal instruction, but then also throughout the day of informal instruction. Now, I feel like I've thrown a lot at you, <laughs> and I feel like these verses can almost feel overwhelming. I don't know where you're at and, and, and how you would put yourself on a scale, like, how am I doing in this area? This can be a little bit overwhelming, but here's the thing is, none of us, not a single person, including myself in this room, loves God perfectly and lives these out perfectly. God is a gracious God, but so we should be encouraged that we, we should be working towards these. So don't be beat up and just kind of say, I'm just not even do anything because I just can't meet those standards. Well, none of us can, but this is what we're supposed to be working towards. We have to be spending time in his word and in prayer and teaching our children. Now, Sean, if you can come up here and Joey, can you help me real quick as well? See, I'm a visual learner and I need a visual. And, uh, but I got to talk quick. So I like visual. I guess Jonathan finally let me out of the children's building and it kind of comes with me here. So, okay. So if Sean, if you'll do me a favor here, if you will just hold this in and Joey, you just hold that rope and I'm going to have you start backing up here in a little bit. Okay. Now this rope right here has seven numbers on it. One, two, three, four, five, and six, and seven. I know you can't see them back there, but there's seven numbers. Now, Sean, if you'll come up here and just hold this right here. Okay, now, now Joey, can, can you even see those numbers? You can't see them back there. You can't even see those numbers, can you? I can't see them. Yeah, okay, let me just stand right here. Okay, just hold them down there. Let's see what, okay, I can see the numbers. They're starting to fade. Let's keep going back. Let's keep going back. Okay, now I'm just seeing white. In my old eyes, I'm just kind of seeing some, yeah, I'm not seeing numbers anymore. I'm losing it. I'm losing it now. This is a really long rock climbing rope, so I could keep going. The average lifespan of a human being is somewhere in the mid-70s. God even said in Scripture, I'm going to limit man's life about that same time, okay? You may not live that long. You may live past it. On average, 70 years, okay? When we get back in eternity and we look back at our life, are, really we, are we really going to be concerned with some of the minutiae that consumes so much of our emotional energy and time? When we look back at that time, what do we want to be focused in on? Maybe we should focus in on the things that our Lord and Savior says, this is the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor. And Moses clearly tells us here, we should be teaching these things to our kids. So this may seem overwhelming that I'm throwing this all on you. Hey, you got to be teaching your kids. You got to be studying the Bible. You got to be praying. You got to be meditating. But this is what's most important. Thank you. Billy Ruth, after, Billy Ruth and I, after we got married, there was something that we really appreciated hearing. And we've used this phrase a lot in our marriage. And it says, the enemy of the best things in life are the good things in life. There's a lot of good things we can do, but are they the best things, okay? I like to fly fish. I like to hunt. I like to rock climb. Those are not bad things that I can do them, but am I doing them so much that they're taking away from the best things? Am I spending time in the Word? Am I spending time in prayer? Am I spending time meditating? Am I spending time loving God? Am I spending time teaching my kids? I hope this has been an encouragement to you. 
How about we pray? All right. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word, that you have clearly communicated your desire for us uh, in this life, and you've communicated who you are so clearly. I pray that you just help us to spend time in the word, to take this passage to heart, and have a desire to grow in our love for you, even though we don't do that perfectly. But I pray that you'll just help us to feel encouraged and help the Holy Spirit to instruct us and to understand your word better. And I pray that you just help us to be committed in, in growing ourselves spiritually, but also to teach it to our kids. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.